Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm Brady Huggett. Our guest today is Mike West, the founder and, and first CEO of Geron, a company that um, grew to eventually be the flagship stem cell company in the U.S., I'd say. He's now the CEO of Biotime. I met with him in a hotel room in San Francisco as the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference was winding down. And you'll know this by the, uh, the, the street noise that worked its way into, into the recording, and, and uh, you'll hear some soft chatter as hotel workers went by out in the hallway. It's a good conversation. We spoke for about an hour. And we covered everything from the trucking industry, oddly enough. We covered a, an epiphany he had as a younger man, which, which led him into the healthcare field, and the politicizing of stem cells, a topic that Mike has strong opinions on. So that's it. Listen up. Here is your First Rounders podcast with Mike West. No, it's a good, it's, you know, the mood, I, I found the mood to be very... Hi. It's, 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 it's upbeat. Uh, it's, we're due for a uh, revival, I think. And yeah. You think this is part of, the, part of the cyclical nature of biotech investing or something else? Happening? Well, of course, all industries are. And, um, and uh, yeah, but the uh, biotech's certainly here to stay. So it's due for a bounce back, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was looking at your background, and you, you were born, I think, in Niles, Michigan? Yeah. Yeah, so it's not far from my mom's side of the family. Oh, really? St. Joe and Benton Harbor. Oh, my gosh. I remember it well. I mean, I had relatives there, and um, St. Joe, Benton Harbor was not too far from my hometown, and um, I remember frequent trips up there uh, back, uh, you know, in the 60s when I was a young scientist. I used to make many uh, treks up there because Heath Company was up there, you may remember, Heath Kit. You could build everything back then, uh, your own color television set, your radio, your shortwave radio, everything from kits. And uh, they had, you know, they really taught my generation electronics. There were electronic courses uh, that Heathkit provided, and they were just a stone's throw for me. And I used to go there and, you know, meet with the electrical engineers and design circuits. And, you know, I I I began science very early. And, uh, but... Benton Harbor St. Joe was uh, the home of of the Heath Company, and uh, so, you know, many young scientists in my era will will remember those days. Well, so Benton Harbor obviously fell into some hard times after that. Absolutely. I thought that it was mostly because Whirlpool had sort of 
they kept their uh, headquarters there, but I think they'd sent their manufacturing someplace else. But it sounds well, like we all, the whole Midwest sent its yeah. manufacturing somewhere else. But and Heath uh, was part of that. I, yeah, I know. The last time I went through Benton Harbor, I, I don't mean to you know impugn my own home turf, but uh, you know uh, there was tumbleweeds blowing through sure. downtown. No, I, I went not long ago when the the theater was closed up, the drive-ins were closed up. Yeah. Um, but I so my uncle still lives. He lives in uh, Barron Springs, and um, sure. he said he, he felt like. Uh, the worst is behind it, and they've started to. Oh, but they've been. You know, Midwestern people are optimists. It's always that. I've, it's, I've never been there that isn't about to turn around. But, um, no, but what's what's uh, important to recognize? And if you grew up in that part of the country, I think you may be more quick to recognize than people in the rest of the United States. Is um, well, let's take the example of my, my family. My father was a bomber pilot in World War II, B-24, you know, in Europe, and uh, came back, and his father had been in the automotive uh, business, and my dad picked up on uh, that there was a significant growing commerce from Gary, Indiana, the, where all the steel mills were, and, of course, the port of Chicago. Uh-huh. Uh, still then a relatively young port, believe it or not. And then... Um, that all of that had to be transferred to Detroit, and between Gary, Indiana, and Detroit was it was like the fulcrum of commerce for the world. Mm-hmm. We rebuilt the whole world after World War II. We were the center of manufacturing for for Europe and much of the rest of the world. And my dad provided uh, you know transportation, not single handedly, but he was part of that group that uh, in the in the trucking business provided. Uh, just bring the materials to Detroit. Yeah, well, he yeah. you know he sold and repaired trucks and this sort of thing, and now, you know, the, so many people came to the Midwest, highly qualified people and families and so on, and so there's a lot of natural, uh, in you know, optimism you know in their blood, so to speak, but uh, they keep thinking it's going to come back. But you know, those were very special times, and now you know. Steel manufacturing is done all around the world. In many cases, we can't even compete anymore. Automotive manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So the Midwest has, you know, lost its mojo. I mean, you know, how how in the world are we going to compete with the likes of, uh, you know, the the manufacturing base in China who can make everything at, at a lower cost? Yeah. You know, so yeah. I. Um, I I have a, a young family, and I'm I'm hoping to get my my children interested in science as I was so you know we've set up a lab in our garage and I went on eBay to find uh, science supplies to start building a chemistry lab you know a burette clamp and ring clamp and things for chemistry and I'll be darned all of these items on eBay all say right on that made in China so the um, what was once uh, like the heat company and a lot of this commerce in the Midwest has now shifted dramatically offshore, so it's it's a changing world. So, but your dad, so your dad brought you into engineering and and I think electric engineering really early. My well, my father was, uh, as I said, in the transportation business. I was born with a test tube in my hand. Everyone wondered why, figuratively, of course. Yeah, <laughs> and um, you know, so I uh, I walked around my dad's uh, shop. Uh, you know, sweeping the floors, trying to get money to buy uh, science supplies, using his lathe to make a Tesla coil. You know, all that. I didn't, I didn't quite fit in. Um, but my dad uh, 
you know, had uh, always had, of course, great aspirations, all fathers do for their children, and saw that, you know, well, here's a guy who could do something in the world of science, and he really uh, helped me. You know, he, he spent a lot of time with me, helping me wade through uh, the training courses of the Heath Company and so on, learning electronics, learning science. So what age was that? Were you were... Uh, nine, or, nine or ten, I would say. And yeah. how did you, um, he sent you over there? He called and said, look, my son is really interested in this. Yeah, isn't that over? great? Yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, I know. Yeah, he, he set up the appointments for me, and I got to go meet with the electrical engineers there. And uh, they helped me design some circuits for some projects I was so I you, dream, I dreamed up. You kept that interest all the way through high school? Yeah. You know, I, um, I've always had a profound interest in science. We, you know, we all have our own uh, things in life, and that was uh, just unnatural for me. But those are different avenues of science, yeah, electrical engineering versus eventually biology. The um, for me, science uh, in whether it be biology or chemistry or physics or astronomy, uh, they all fascinated me. You know, it's the to me the greatest allure of science was the thrill of discovery, uh-huh. and I really, um, I really tasted that. The most, I think, later in my life as I got into medical research. Uh, you know, the the thrill of waiting, you know, for an x-ray film developer for the film to drop with the results of an experiment and uh-huh. knowing for the first time you're looking at the, the mysteries of the world around us and learning something that no one on the planet's ever learned before. I mean, it's, so, it's addictive. It's kind of like yeah. a drug. So I, I was looking at your background. It, from After high school, it looks like you went to Troy, New York. I went to Rensselaer Polytech, yeah. uh, undergrad. And yeah. that was, um, but that was for psychology and well, management, yeah. I think. Yeah, you know, well, right. So the management part to, to help me with my, my father with his business. Uh, the psychology part, RPI had a physiological psychology department. And, um, and I, you know, I... In the story of Mike West, you got to understand that um, I have a, a. Normally, I would have pursued physics. Uh, I started out at RPI in physics, uh, probably my greatest interest in life. But um, early on, I recognized that I, maybe also um, different than some people, and that I have. Uh, I have this heart condition. It's uh, meaning I have a heart for mankind. Uh, I one of these saps that care about people uh-huh. and care about people. Oh, you're one of those. Suffering. You care yeah. about people. Yeah, and I and I, you know, <laughs> you're still formulating your um, your views about life and how you, uh, what kind of career you want to have and all this. And I, you know, I thought I want to do something to help people. And, uh, and you know, I never really seriously considered going into psychology, but I was trying to find my way to help people of course eventually that led to medical research as a way to help people yeah but you never considered that i wanted to be a doctor to help people you just knew that you wanted to help people in some i mean often that's the route people take i played with the idea of actually being a physician but um um again you know the we all you know find our way in life along a, a path sometimes circuitous and for me it was um you know wanting to help people strongly so but also Recognizing that I really love the thrill of discovery, and so that's really what you know pulled me into medical research rather than just the practice of medicine. Okay, so you're you were thinking about physics for your undergrad. Uh, that's that's my first love though is physics. Do you still follow it at all? Well, sure. 
from a distance. We're all amateur and, physicists, yeah. right? We all yeah. read about black holes and right. time travel. Um, okay, so then after undergrad, how did you begin to take this other path which led you into medical research? Well, you know, that's... Um, I'll tell you a story that I rarely tell people because, um, you know, it might sound kind of bizarre, but um, assuming some of your listeners might be scientists and things, they might might, uh, appreciate. Um, Back in right around the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, I was uh, there in, in, in Niles, Michigan, helping my father with his business. And uh, having lunch one day, and I had the darndest thing happen to me. And some people can relate to this. It's probably something I ate in my hamburger. Uh-huh. And it was probably aflatoxin or something in my french fries. <laughs> but I was sitting at this hamburger place, and um, I looked across at my hometown cemetery. It's called the Silver Brook Cemetery uh-huh. in Niles, Michigan. And all of a sudden, it was sort of like an epiphany. It was, it was, like I say, it was kind of uh, almost like you know there was something floating in my in my blood, altering my you know altered state of consciousness. I saw in my mind a day in the future when everyone I cared about in the world was buried in that cemetery. The sun's going to rise on that day. I just saw it as clear as a bell. I could see, you know, I mean, not literally seeing it, but I could see my dad's name carved in stone on uh a tombstone, which it now is. In that cemetery? In that cemetery. And I knew exactly how I'd spend the rest of my life. It was just like an epiphany. I'm going to work on aging. The greatest, in my mind, the greatest uh, challenge that mankind has ever faced and it, you know, it manifests itself in the whole history of mankind and its search to understand nature and religion and philosophy and, and of course, medicine is this challenge of the fact that we're all mortal. And in the case of my father, uh, whom I love dearly, he was, um, you know, had very severe coronary disease, had his first heart attack at 27, and uh, eventually I lost him at the age of 62. And um, and I realized, you know, this is just wrong. In the business that my my dad had there in the trucking business, which I helped him with, and I, I ran the parts department there uh, after college, if you brought in a truck off that highway from Cary, Indiana, D- Detroit, Michigan, and uh, you had a crankshaft snapped in two, well, darn it, we had it. We had with the best parts department in southwestern Michigan there. And uh, we'd get you back on the road, right? Uh-huh. What if, let's put it in a different way. What if that truck driver came in, he's got a load, he's got to get to Detroit, you know, it's going to hold up, a, you know, a whole bunch of cars out of Ford Motor Company if they don't get that load into Detroit by tomorrow morning. And they say, well, you know, we don't have a parts department. Um... I can solder it, I can weld it, but put some chewing gum it. on it. Yeah. And what I realized was, you know, all part of that epiphany, we don't have, my dad had simply coronary disease. You know, it's a plumbing problem to the heart. Why in the heck doesn't medicine have a spare parts supply store? Yeah. Why can't we put new heart muscle in uh, for someone uh, like we do with uh, automobiles? The human body, our fellow human being, 
my father in particular is far more valuable than some semi-truck. And I thought, you know, I didn't know how we would accomplish all this, but I thought, you know, I, I'm one of these people, like I think many of your listeners who were born with an interest in science and technology, and I thought, you know, we could figure stuff like this out. And I've got a whole life ahead of me, which back then seemed like a long time. Yeah. And uh, you know, I thought we could get this done. So I, um, I set out to, um, to tackle the problem of aging itself. I thought I'd get into the biology of aging research we call gerontology. And that's when you sort of made the switch over towards medical Yeah, you know, so I sold my, 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 I had lost my father in 1980, and then uh, by uh, 1982, I had sold off our family business, and uh, I went off to, to graduate school to study aging research. Okay, so one thing before, I want to get to your grad school work, but, so when you had this epiphany, I mean, I think that would put some sort of anxiety or pressure on me, realizing that you have such limited time. Because I noticed in, you know, after you went to grad school, you started a company right after that. Yeah, it wasn't that short. I, I started out working with Sam Goldstein um, first at the University of Arkansas Medical School. Sam was, uh, so this was 82. Sam Goldstein uh, was a, you know, pioneer in studying the aging of human cells, uh-huh. you know, what we call the Hayflick phenomenon, the fact that human somatic body cells have a finite capacity to replicate, and he was using that as a model system. So I began working with Sam, and yeah, I do remember uh, very early on in my uh, graduate career with Sam that, um, yeah, I I'd already, I'd began thinking about, you know, maybe this could best be done ultimately in a biotech setting. Yeah, and I that was say. fairly early. I, think I, didn't, this was I actually didn't start, though, uh, Geron the first... 92, right? Yeah, it was you know, ten years later. Oh, okay. So you were thinking well, about it. I started it a few years before that, but the first, you know, final successful venture funding for Geron, uh, I pulled together in 1992. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought that somehow you'd finished your post grad and then moved right into it, both in '92. But apparently, that's not the case. Maybe you left Arkansas then. Yeah, I left Arkansas in the late '80s and then moved to um, Baylor Medical School. I ultimately did my PhD at, uh, from Baylor Medical School. I think I got my degree in '88 or '89. I can't remember something like and that. And then Geron. Yeah, and then uh, you know I'd started Geron um, as a graduate student. <laughs> it's a, it's one of these things of parallel processing. I continued a truck leasing company just to help fund me through graduate school. As many of you know, it's a, uh, it's a bit of a drain on finances. It costs, yeah. And uh, so I was still leasing trucks back in Michigan, but I changed the truck leasing company's name from uh, West Leasing Company to Geron because I wanted to take some of my profits <clears throat> and do some research on some ideas I had, you know, uh, independently of the university, you know. You, many people played that game. It's a dangerous game because um, it, although as a graduate student, you know, you don't have any obligation to assign intellectual property rights to the university. Some universities do. I didn't. But still, I, you know, I wanted to keep any of my business ideas separate right. from, the com- from the university. And so you used the the profits from the trucking lease, the truck leasing company. For Mostly, yeah, uh, uh, no, for for research. Yeah, and um, but I'd say mostly to float business plans. Uh, you know, I I spent tens of thousands of dollars at Kinkos. Uh, 
copying off business plans, FedEx, and you know, trying to find people who would invest in such a, a wild-eyed idea as a biotech company focused on aging. But so to be clear, this was your father's business he passed on, and you were running it still. Yeah, it was one of the businesses. One of them. Right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're sort of putting yourself through grad school that way, right? And then you basically formed Geron, although it was a truck leasing company. The company <laughs> it's originally a truck leasing yeah. company. Yeah. I, I, what did you do with the truck leasing company? Well, you know, when the last truck uh, lease was uh, finished, uh, you know, I sold the trucks, and Geron uh, and became, uh, you know, full fledged biotech company. Okay. Full-time. Let's talk about the founding. How'd that happen? Well, the uh, you know late. I was trying to think of a name for such a company. Uh, there, there really was no. Uh, I think there was a company called Senatech in the early days. You know, named like Genetech, but Senescence. Uh-huh. I don't know whatever happened to that company. I was watching it at the time, but I thought there was no biotech company that had ever was focusing on what I thought was the most productive model, which was this uh, model of cell aging. So, what we knew at the time. Uh, was that um, that human somatic cells universally aged? The Hayflick, Leonard Hayflick's observation from uh-huh. the 60s. Um, we we didn't know. I've got to clarify. We did not know that cells um, in vivo in tumors were immortal. We actually did not know that in those days. What we knew was cultured cells from tumors, tumor cell lines, were immortal. And by immortal, we mean capable of indefinite proliferation. Uh, And that was usually judged by an aging researcher as cells that would go more than 100 doublings. You know, if they went 100, 120 doublings, no one carried them out to 10,000 doublings. Usually, no one had ever documented, to my knowledge, a human somatic cell type in those days that would go more than 100 doublings and then stop. Mm-hmm. We knew that uh, that if you cultured cells from premature aging diseases, like you know, you've heard of Hutchins and Guilford syndrome, progeria, where these children grow old, they get coronary disease. And uh, typically if you culture cells from those individuals, they show a, a shortened proliferative lifespan. And... Um, so I thought, you know, there had never been a company that focused on that biology and then attempted to learn from that uh, potential therapeutic strategies that could be used. And so that was, uh, you know, my vision for uh, a gerontology company, which became Geron. And then how did you, you know, where did you get your investors? How did you form the team? Yeah, you know, that uh, that's a... a, a Kind of a sad story. I, I wrote a book called *The Immortal Cell*, which recounts some of the, you know, the, the the history of this, and particularly, ultimately, where it would lead. You know, the stem cell field. And I tell a story in that book. Um, I was, um, you know, without naming names, I was in front of uh, an investor who uh, uh, I was hoping would be an investor uh, in Geron, who was uh, known for his interest in aging research. And uh, I'd taken time off from school and gone to meet with him. And I recount the story in the book that I'm mean, just this investor and I in a room, you know, you're giving your pitch, uh-huh. or in those days, slides, you yeah. know, 35 millimeters. And I, 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 it's certainly not a lack of enthusiasm on my part. I mean, I'm very excited it, about yeah. the, the prospects of this. And I'm trying to get, and he falls asleep, literally snoring, I suppose. Oh, it's just the two of you in the room? While, yeah. While I'm giving the presentation, now if there's a group of three people in the room and the main person you're trying to reach falls asleep, it's okay, you can keep going, you can maybe raise focus. your voice a right. bit. 
But when you're you're talking to one person and they're obviously sleeping, what do you do? <laughs> I tell the story in the book. So I'm sitting there, I stop. Should I talk louder? Should I tap on the shoulder? I know what I should do. I should go back to school and stop this dream of starting a biotech company. And I did. Uh, that was that was for me the if I couldn't convince and keep awake the one investor that had a reputation for being interested in this area. Then who then who could you convince? Yeah, yeah. Who could I could possibly right. convince? And then I, so I went back to school. But so but I have to did you did you just walk out of the room? How did you No, no, I I don't remember. I you eventually I think, woke up? I think I stood there like a doofus until <laughs> he finally woke back up and I continued like I uh, like you didn't like, even notice. Yeah, yeah, I didn't notice. Right. He hadn't fallen asleep. It was, uh, I don't know, a few years later. Uh, I uh, I had a little office there, uh, in, in, now I'm in Dallas, Texas, and um, studying in the office. Uh, and uh, one day the phone rang. There was a man named Alan Walton. Alan uh, was a scientist, uh, been, I think, a professor at Case Western, uh, but he later in his life became a venture capitalist. A uh, pretty well-known one. Alan called me up and he said, um, "Dr. West, he says, uh, pleasure to meet you. He said, I've been wanting to start a biotech company in the field of uh, aging, and everywhere I go, I hear your name. Hmm. We need to meet." So Alan said, "You got to come." He says, "Every year we have in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, the Redwood Shores Biotech Conference." And it's put on by Oxford Bioscience Partners, which mm-hmm. was his venture firm, and Ernst & Young, at least it was in those days. And it was a big event. He says, this is a big event. You need to come. At this point, we used to have a handshake. He wants to lead the financing. And um, so I came with my 35-millimeter slide deck. And uh, we all have good days and bad days. It was this. I, I was strong that day. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I felt... I felt uh, really ready to tackle any crowd. I walked into this auditorium, and gosh, there were over a thousand people, and they were all wearing suits. These were all biotech investors and so on, and I had never had a venue like that. I walk uh, to the podium. Alan introduces me, and he said something to the effect. uh, Today, uh, we're going to hear about a company called Geron, and... um, this is going to be the greatest company in the history of biotechnology, Dr. West. But to be clear, you're you're addressing now a thousand people. Oh, uh, something like that. It was a huge crowd. How did you manage to get? Uh, I mean, you know, the pitches today. You get a you get a few guys in the room and pitch. This was a field uh, of investors. Well, yeah, specifically, yeah. were waiting for Jaron to talk. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Go ahead. So no wonder. So th- yeah. th- this is uh, this is my big fish story, but the fish isn't going to get away this time. So. Um, so as I said, I, I was uh, I was strong that day. I gave a, a really I thought a really cogent you know introduction to the company I wanted to build and my plans to do so. And uh, so then you know we you know, we oh well, I'll tell you one little other anecdote. Uh, there was time for questions at the end, and Alan uh, said uh, you know any questions, and there was silence in the room. Of course, you never know how to interpret that. Yeah. And then in the far back left corner of this huge crowd, there was one lone voice that spoke up without a microphone and said, hurry up. <laughs> and just, you know, brought down the house. Because that's what everyone was thinking. It's yeah. like, is this real? You know, where is this going to go? Yeah. Well, 
I thought, you know, I'll, maybe I'll hear, I'll get an email from somebody, whatever, and I'm packing up my things. Up to me comes this group of guys, again in suits, locked arms around me, like a mice cell, you know, surroundings, you know, a solution. Wouldn't let anybody near me. I mean, I mean literally, I'm talking literally locking their arms. I mean, it was kind of a, a circus thing. And pulled me out of that auditorium into a side room. And one of them, uh, named Brooke Byers, he said, um, do you know who Kleiner Perkins is? And I think I'd heard their name. And I said, well, I don't want to, you know, insult them. I said, well, of course, everyone knows who Kleiner sure, Perkins yeah. is. And uh, he says, well, you know, we're the leading venture company in the world. And he rattled off, you know, Genentech and yeah. Amgen and America Online or whatever, all these famous companies. And he says, we, uh, we want to lead the financing of Geron, and we want you to answer right now. If you're, if you're interested, yes or no. Would no, you take we, we want your commitment uh-huh. right now. And um, back in my days of working with my father in the, in the trucking business, he taught me some basic principles of business transactions. And that's when a deal's on the table you find acceptable, don't let it walk out the door. So I, you know, I, I acted like I was thinking about this really hard, you know. And well, I've got some other, you know, other offers. And Alan Walton wanted to lead the round, and you know. I was going to ask, did you feel like you needed to talk to Alan before you did this? Yeah, well, Alan was, I think, tickled. Uh, the Kleiners, you know, uh, did Google. You know. yep. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Since they're, you know, they even then were the, they were considered the number one venture capitalist in the world. And I thought, you know, the, this field needed that kind of credibility. And so we did the deal. And, uh, you know, I moved to California and Geron began uh, here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And what we early on focused the company on was a wild-eyed idea. Back in uh, the days when I first started working with Sam Goldstein, Sam um, had this instinct based on some work that had been done by Woody Wright and, and Len Hayflick's lab at Stanford that 
not only was there a, a clock of cell aging in somatic cells, but it was nuclear and that it was, you know, in the DNA. Uh-huh. So Sam was the first molecular biologist to work to try to tackle the biology of aging. And his instinct was that it had something to do with repetitive DNA sequences and changes in repetitive DNA. And, um, you know, he had some false starts, frankly. Um, he uh, pursued uh, a, an inter-ALU repetitive, moderately repetitive sequence, which didn't pan out. It was a bit of a bit of a scandal, frankly. Uh-huh. And um, R1 repeats, EcoR1 repeats, uh, that thought was being lost with aging. It turned out not to be true, probably not true. And uh, so there were some you know, false starts there, but there was discussion about uh, a Russian scientist, Alexei Lubnikov, who had made this theoretical prediction that the, every time that somatic cells replicated, there, there was a repetitive sequence at the telomere uh, of the chromosomes, and that somatic cells lost the capacity to replicate the lagging strand, something that Jim Watson was to later describe as the end replication problem, and uh, that there was this mysterious immortalizing enzyme, uh, which came to be called telomerase, mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, allowed cells to replicate the telomere, and if in the presence of telomerase, they were immortal. What I had um, come to conclude was that I bet, I believed that that was true. Um, But we didn't know it was true. Mm -hmm. And so having Kleiner Perkins, such a strong VC, supporting this company, who could have you know, piled any amount of capital, and uh, you know, frankly, their prestige helped. Yeah, helped us to tackle um, uh, not only a challenging early stage uh, bit of biology, but also um, one that you know anyone would have said, "Look, there's no, there's no proof of this at all. This is not even close to proof." And um, so we really put huge amount of our effort in the early days of Geron on this bet, filed patents on it, but put a team to work to try to find the telomerase gene to see could we demonstrate uh, that indeed this was the biology behind cellular aging, and then could we find therapeutic uses for this bio- telomere biology. Again, looking at your, at your background, you were, you were at Geron for maybe four or five years, I think, before you went to advanced cell technology? Well, I mean, from the time of the venture funding in the spring of 92, and then yeah. I left in the um, spring of 98, so I was there six years, yeah. And then why? what happened? Why, why the transition away? Well, in 90, what happened was in 1995, I was thinking about, or maybe a little before then, I was thinking about, I was certain enough that the telomerase was the immortalizing enzyme that I was thinking about how could we use this gene therapeutically in aging. Remember, this was the whole vision of right. where ultimately we wanted to go. And, and how do we transfer telomerase activity in a way to be therapeutic? Well, one idea would be gene therapy. Uh-huh. And as you know, that, uh, that is a challenging idea. And But the the transfection of the gene uh, into, or genes, we didn't even know back then how many genes were involved. I thought one based uh-huh. on the kinetics. I thought, well, why don't we try to transfect a, a stem cell? Why don't we reset cell lifespan, assuming it all worked, 
uh, into some kind of a stem cell. And somehow all of a sudden it occurred to me, you know, why don't we try to transfect the, uh, an all-powerful stem cell? I love these mouse embryonic stem cells. I, you know, I, I always thought that, you know, why doesn't somebody try to get the human embryonic stem cell? Mm-hmm. And so um, I, had, I was working with a, um, a researcher at UCSF named Roger Peterson. Uh, Roger's now at Cambridge. And, um, but he was at UCSF, and uh, we were collaborating on a mouse embryonic stem cell project, and I had learned that he ran the IVF lab at UCSF. Uh-huh. And Roger agreed to collaborate with us to try to make human embryonic stem cells from discarded human embryos. In, once we had begun that project, uh, I began thinking about these cells, and I thought, you know what, these cells because they can make everything in the body, and I thought probably still make reproductive cells, they might be the one exception. They might be a naturally telomerase-positive cell. Now, if they were, if they would be the you know, one exception in human cell biology, a cell that you could culture in the dish and keep it in an undifferentiated state, and it would be a naturally immortal cell, and then you could differentiate it into any cell type that would then be at the beginning of life. It'd be like babies born young. Uh-huh. You could make an infinite stream of product of any cell building block in the human body. You could make young heart muscle, young blood cells, young nerve cells, or you know all the thousands of cell types in the human body on an industrial scale forever from one cell line. And thus basically replace body parts like you were thinking about. The parts store. Yeah, exactly. You're going to be a parts store company, right. Okay. I can go back into the parts business uh-huh. where I cut my cut teeth, teeth as a right. young man. And um, I thought, that's a big idea. That That's just a really great idea. One day, Roger, by the way, Roger Peterson, uh, for those of you, of, uh, Listeners that know him is a magnanimous man. Uh, he's uh, got a heart as big as the world. I think maybe we shared that characteristic. Uh-huh. And, a, and a visionary. And uh, he called me up. Uh, you know, it's okay for me to say this. I'll, I'll get Roger in trouble. Roger <laughs> called me up and said, I just reviewed an article. I'm not supposed to tell you, but, mm. but I'm going to anyway because life's short. There's this researcher in Wisconsin, named James Thompson, and uh, he has a paper in press in PNAS, and uh, in that uh, article, he's going to publish the isolation of embryonic stem cells from the rhesus monkey. And um, being a biotech guy, I thought, wait a minute, rhesus, primate, patent claim, I could see in my mind the patent claim, primate, you know, embryonic stem cell composition of matter. And uh, literally the next day, I knocked on Jamie's door. And um, So you flew there the next day? Yeah, I was literally there the next morning. Yeah, that afternoon I flew to Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, I love that. So did, did he, yeah. when you knocked on the door, did he say, number one, how did you find out about this? And what are you doing here? You know, it's uh, my memory's rusty, but what I do remember is a very soft-spoken individual, and um, 
and me giving uh, a, a, a pitch, a strong sales pitch. And um, what to form a company around his research? No, you know what I said was um, because I wanted I wanted these cells yeah. bad. And we had tried, I had tried myself in the lab to grow um, human pluripotent cells from, from testes and from ovary, uh-huh. from aborted human tissues, you know, trying to, what they call them, embryonic germ cells. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get these cells to grow. And um, but the fact that he had gotten these cells from monkey, I thought, you know, come on. I mean, you know, his, he's good enough at culturing novel cell lines. Roger, of course, had a lot of experience as well with the mouse. But um, Jamie had accomplished it with the monkey, and I, I said, uh, Jamie, the, um, you know, and I, I tried building a case. It was kind of a clumsy one, but I said, you know, we're, these cells would be predictably an immortal cell, telomerase positive, and we're the telomere company, and you really need to be working with us. I think if you talk to Jamie, what, what he saw was uh, the restrictions on federal funding, and he knew that he could not derive um, under the Dickey Wicker Amendment, he could not derive with NIH funding, you know, potentially for any instrument in the lab, you know, if a a spatula was bought with NIH funding and it was used, he could potentially get in a lot of hot water. And so he saw there with Jeron all private money, we hadn't taken, I don't think, any federal monies. Uh, as a source, he could build an independent little lab funded entirely with Geron's money to try to get human embryonic stem cells. And so uh, we had a deal. The one wrinkle was uh, his tech transfer department, Madison Wharf, the Wisconsin Alumni mm-hmm. Research Foundation, was a very sophisticated group. And uh, they would not give me an exclusive license, which was completely unexpected. All you know, biotech companies funding such early stage research would easily get an exclusive license. They just don't do it. They just have a huge aversion to it. Huh. And uh, I threatened to walk away, you know, and uh, this and that. And Jamie put pressure on them, and they said, "Well, best we'll do is we'll we'll give you an exclusive license for a period of time, but uh, we will not give you exclusivity." So uh, that was kind of a downer. In retrospect, can you imagine? Obviously, these cells were isolated in Jamie's lab. Uh, if Geron had the exclusive license yeah. worldwide, this would have been Forever, a yeah. major issue. Yeah. I wouldn't have. I don't. I there. I was in numerous Senate hearings. I suspect the NIH might have even exercised marching rights and taken the patent away. That leads me into the next question, though. Um, once you're in advanced cell technology. Uh, you guys sort of became almost like the the voice of stem cell technology. It seemed like any time there was an issue, and it was in the press a lot back then, you know, you guys were quoted either yourself or Robert Lanza. And uh, the question is, was that a concerted effort on your part to become the voice of this area of research, or did that just did the press just find you naturally? I, I don't know the answer to that, but the um, the in, in, I, I can't speak for Bob Lanza, but in my case, it was. Uh, yeah, I, as I mentioned, I have uh, you know I've given a lot of thought to my life to ethical and philosophical issues as well as the science. I know a lot about uh, you know religion. Uh-huh. I studied uh, at one point I could read the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. You know, so I, I felt that look, um, I I really want desperately as much as I wanted to make these cells uh, and develop this technology platform. I thought 
You know, I want the United States to get this right. As I mentioned, I grew up in the 60s, you know, the Sputnik era. Mm -hmm. Science reigned supreme in the United States in those days. You know, the, our government and our country looked to science to solve our, our problems and defend our country. And, uh, you know, I couldn't imagine in my mind that on such an important uh, issue for me and for medicine and the country that we would get this wrong. And there was a lot of demagoguery. I mean, I, I, you know, I hesitate to go public with a lot of the scandalous stuff, but uh, there were politicians unabashedly, I won't name names maybe, but uh, unabashedly were using this issue for votes. Oh, absolutely. I, I think yeah. that's a given. I, mean, I don't yeah, think well, you're saying I, I find don't it know. scandalous. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it scandalous because if it was, um, you know, they're trying to get votes off from, you know, uh, like this recent thing in the news about the uh, the bridge fiasco with Christie and uh -huh. so on. I mean, you know, that's maybe not fair game uh, either, but it's uh, it's about some traffic and this yeah. sort of thing. This was about the health and welfare of the American people, people who are like my father, you know, dying of a heart attack. I, I thought this is this is not this is off limits. This is science and medicine. Um, it's just absolutely immoral to misinform the American people. I remember one um, hearing where one of these opponents of stem cell research, who was an MD, held up a recording device up to a microphone in an interview with a fetal heartbeat, and said, "This." is what we're talking about, and let that heart beat. That is exactly what we're not talking about. Yeah. Yeah. What we were talking about were pre-implantation embryos that, A, were being thrown away, being used for IVF and then discarded, but secondly, did not have any, not one, cell type of the human body there, certainly not a beating heart. Mm -hmm. And he, if he didn't know better, he should have known better. But um, anyway, so you can see I'm a little, well, still no, this, this day, I'm course, still a little... But that went all the way to the top, right? I mean, Bush came down with the only the established cell lines can be used for Carl research. Carl Rove saw this as a major wedge issue and could get votes with it. Uh, you know, uh, he was a dirty trickster. Um, I've heard the stories firsthand from friends of John McCain about how he spread rumors about you know John McCain and his uh, dark-skinned child, uh, that was yeah. an illegitimate child, yeah. and all these kinds of things. Anything's fair game in politics uh, by some people's mind. And then, but what I felt was, look, the uh, the United States is. It's not just about the United States. The whole world looks to the United States for leadership in things like this. They really do. Mm -hmm. And in countries that you would think are self-sustaining and should make their own decisions. They still look to the United States. We are the world's leader still in medical research. And um, and so this was really a worldwide issue. We had to get it right. And so, yes, we were involved in a lot of that. We did our best to always, um, you know, uh, say things accurately and, and try to get things right. Uh, but we were clearly um, advocating uh, that we need to get the facts uh, right and, and to advance this very important medical technology. So I want to ask you one more thing about advanced cell technology, and then we'll move on to Jaron and Biotime. But um, also, you guys published what was considered the first human cloning. Mm -hmm. 
and it made quite a splash publicity-wise. Yeah, I, I think there's some grumblings maybe with the science. The cell's divided a few times and then, and then perished, I think. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, which, which is what we published. Right. Um, so what was that like for, for, for you guys to be at the helm of that? I mean, it, it brought a ton of uh, attention to the company. But I think scientifically people were saying, well, you know, it wasn't successful cloning well, because it didn't actually live. No, I know. You know, w- w- why did we do it that way? Why did we publish a paper when we never got the embryonic stem cells? Well, what we had been, both I and Jose Sabelli, who was the lead author in that paper and our, our principal nuclear transfer guy, uh, had read um, uh, A Matter of Life uh, you know, by the founders of IVF. It was a book written by, by the two of them. And... Um, this book, A Matter of Life, described uh, how in the beginnings of IVF, which was a very controversial technology in those days, uh-huh. uh, every step of the way from the, fertil- from the first fertilization of an egg cell where the egg fer- you know, transversed the, uh, the zona pellucida, they published a paper on it. And there was a lot of controversy, but they said absolute transparency. We're publishing everything. everything. And and then uh, and so their first paper wasn't the first child Louise you know, Brown born by IVF. It was every step of the way as they went, and we were inspired by that book and that account. And Jose and I both decided, look, we'll publish everything as it goes, and that was the the origins of it. And you know, I'm proud of the fact that. Uh, you know, everything that we published in that paper was accurate. And as you know, it was over ten years later. Scientists still were not able to make nuclear transfer go beyond the first, you know, few stages, and finally, of course, ultimately did succeed. Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay, Geron, this is after you've left. Geron uh, eventually divests its stem cell research, right. keeps its oncology assets. Uh, we actually wrote a case study on that. Um, you've acquired them back now at BioTime, and uh, so yeah. what? Are, what are the plans for for BioTime going forward? Well, the um, the, we, we very much believe in the uh, the power of pluripotency um, uh, for, se- for several reasons. One, as I already alluded to, the, the fact that pluripotent stem cells maintain themselves in this naturally immortal state. It's really a reflection, I think, that they are still germline competent, and so they, you know, the human species continues forever. Uh-huh. You know, we're, 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 for those who have thought about this, we're, our bodies, you and I, are a uh, result of a lineage of cells that have been proliferating for billions of years. It's really a, an amazing thought mm-hmm. that we'll die for the first time in billions of years when we die. And we're, I, we believe we're capturing that with these pluripotent cells. And so, as I said, setting them up as a, in master cell banks as a manufacturing platform is a very powerful industrial platform because you don't have to go back and requalify new cells you don't need to have an assembly line of aborted fetuses coming into the company you know the existing lines are fine uh, so we really much are committed to this pluripotent platform and have acquired uh, as you pointed out the assets from Geron uh, I don't believe they discarded of them for any technical reason that they aren't working there's some technical problem it was a matter of focus for that company. We bought the uh, the government of Singapore decided to enter the space in the Bush era, saying, "If the United States won't lead, we, we will." will. Mm-hmm. We bought that company, ESL International, licensed technology from my second company, ACT. So we pulled together, you know, over six hundred patents and patent applications, and um, 
so we, you know, we're restarting the, the world's first clinical trial with oligodendrocyte progenitors from Geron. Um, they also had a program to make a vaccine against telomerase for cancer using ES-derived dendritic cells as an antigen-presenting cell. And we've also now made over 200 clonal embryonic progenitors that can be scaled up from uh, pluripotent stem cells. And so we have in that bank, you know, site-specific embryonic onlogging to tissues throughout the body. Another reason we're enthusiastic about this platform is um, there are evidences that uh, cells early in embryonic development have a regenerative potential maybe reflecting the natural regenerative potential of some vertebrate animals mm-hmm. like the Mexican axolotls that can regenerate arms and legs and other tissues in their body. We think that's a carryover of embryonic development, some genes that are not shut off as they are in, in humans, and uh, that these embryonic onlogin have regenerative potential that exceeds that of the fully differentiated human, and that that switch to turn those genes off occurs in the embryonic to fetal transition and these clonal progenitors are still arrested pre-fetal. So they are, we call them embryonic progenitors. And so, you know, we're quite enthusiastic about developing um, a number of these cellular therapies as, um, uh, as cellular therapeutics. Probably the most visible, no pun intended, um, product from pluripotency is the retinal pigment epithelial cell, which everyone in the world is going after. Why? Uh, big market, small number of cells needed, less of a concern of rejection, and, um, and they're easy to make. They, they pigment themselves, mm-hmm. so they show you where they are on the dish, and they're easy to make. And we also have a subsidiary in Israel called CellCure that's uh, advancing that product. And the first thing that we should be looking for is the restart of the clinical trial? From from, from the from the Geron assets, yeah. so um, that was a spinal cord injury. Yeah, so yeah, we are uh, you know in the process of that company going public, so we aren't saying a lot about our, our discussions with the FDA, but except to say that you know we're in discussions about restarting that trial. Um, the original trial was done on uh, thoracic uh, spinal cord injury, and the logic was. This was the first product ever made from embryonic stem cells put in humans. And so there was a huge safety concern. Yeah. And another safety concern in that making a pure product from cells as powerful as this is, is problematic. And so FDA was very concerned about, you know, what would happen uh, safety-wise. And so they insisted on thoracic injuries, you know, if you made the patient much worse and some kind of a lesion spread for one or two segments in the, you know, in the vertebrae in the spine, it isn't going to make much of a difference in a thoracic injury. But if you, if you had a cervical injury in the neck, far more common, of course, um, one vertebral level can suddenly make you not breathe or be able to use your arms mm-hmm. or something. And so um, the initial trials had to be done thoracic. Uh, many, there are many more cervical injuries, especially in countries like China, where there's a lot of bicycles. And um, you know, our hope is is that now, uh, having all this time gone by with these initial phase one patients, and uh, no evidence of any um, adverse events relating to the graft, 
um, that uh, the FDA will allow uh, us to move into other uh, to cervical injuries and or potential other applications as well. There are many demyelinating diseases. So I, I want to ask you maybe one final thing, but mm-hmm. going back to uh, the cemetery in Niles, yeah. So right. do you think that you're also going to be buried there someday? You know, you know that that's. Uh, it's not about um, it's not about uh, winning the race. It's about the race itself. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I didn't even know back then. Uh, yeah, I'm a gerontologist, and that, that's the one question gerontologists hate to, to hear: is any kind of predictions as to how successful we'll be in science in combating the problem of human aging and when. Uh-huh. Um, my old colleague Sam Goldstein always used to take it on heartily, and he'd say, "You know, in, our, in the lifetime of many now living, will live to be 160 years old." You know, he was quite willing to say that. Um, I'm uh, anybody who knows me. I'm certainly not afraid of controversy. Uh, I'd be willing to say that, but I, I'm a scientist, and you know, I don't know what we're going to do. What I do know. Is is that reprogramming technologies like we were working with with cloning and uh, nuclear transfer and uh, now IPS technologies, IPS less so maybe, but we know we're able to reset the telomere length all the way back to the beginning of life, and as far as we know, everything that we've studied and looked at on you know gene expression microarrays and so on is the cells that are taken back in this manner are indistinguishable from the cells we were born from. So at least for some cell types, I I would say that in the lifetime of many now living, that they will have implanted in them spare parts, so to speak, heart Mm -hmm. muscle or blood cells or whatever, for instance, an immune system that they were born with. And for a car, you can keep a car alive, running on the streets forever by continually replacing components, and the Model T can still run down through the streets of uh, San Francisco here. Humans are a little more complicated, you know, unbolt and bolt in new parts yeah. quite as easily. But, I, you know, I will certainly predict that uh, uh, we will, um, if you average, here, let's put it in a scientific way, if you averaged the age of all of the cells in our body, We'll be implanting a lot of young cells, your own cells that are made young again using this technology. The average age of your cells in your body, we will be reversing that. Huh. In terms of lifespan, we'll just have to wait and see. Thanks. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So that's it, your First Rounders podcast with Mike West. I'd like to point out a few things. Number one, you can subscribe to these podcasts on our podcast homepage. You can find them in iTunes by searching for Nature Biotechnology. And we are also now on Stitcher, which means you can stream these on your iPhone, your Android, your iPad, your PC, and however else you listen to podcasts. So there's that. So thanks again to Mike West. Thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music. I'm Brady Huggett, and you've been listening to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 